Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, and welcome. I hope you're having a good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time of day it is. I hope it's good. My morning so far has been quite lovely. I just made myself a banana smoothie that really just tasted like a banana milkshake, uh, it, but it was quite literally just blended up bananas with a little bit of vanilla protein powder, milk, a little cinnamon, and some vanilla extract. Blend that baby up, boom. The best breakfast I've had in a long time. So that's pretty fantastic. I highly recommend. But anyway, I'm pretty sure you're not here to listen to me talk about my breakfast. So today I'm going to be telling you a story of a teenage girl who escaped some of Australia's most prolific serial killers. And that's right, I said killers plural. It was a pair of serial killers who went on a killing spree in the mid 80s in Australia outside of Perth. But before I get into our survivor's story, I'm going to give you a bit of background on who these people were, and I guess how they got there. Not that there's really a good reason, because there isn't, but before we jump in, I did want to quickly say that this story is definitely dark. These people were monsters, and some discussion may not be fit for all listeners. But with that said, let's jump in. Johnny and Margaret Burney had their first son, David, in February of 1951, and he was the oldest of five siblings. David's childhood was very chaotic and unstable. His mother was an alcoholic, and his father wasn't around much. He was described as a frail man who worked 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, so he just wasn't really around. The house was notoriously filthy, and Mrs. Burney was described as an ill-kempt woman known to exchange sexual favors with taxi drivers in lieu of payment and possibly engaged in incest. I don't have any further information on that, but honestly, I don't want to know. The child care was pawned off on either her older children or random people she sat next to on the bus. There were times Margaret would get on the bus holding a filthy, wet, hungry child and would sit down and pass the baby to the person next to her for the ride. She would pull out cigarettes and something to read and would do her own thing until it was time to get off the bus. And at home, it was up to David and his siblings to take care of themselves. When David's youngest brother, Jamie, was born, all responsibility was put on him. If the baby cried and David and his other siblings didn't spring into action, they would be beaten by Margaret. David's teacher in Sunday school, Arlene Collins, noticed that David had psychological problems. He was a very angry child who would constantly draw extremely strange and violent drawings. And as he got older, David would get into trouble with the law for petty burglary, breaking and entering, stealing, and he was first institutionalized at the age of eight. David met his neighbor, Catherine Harrison, at around 12 years old, and unfortunately for the two, they had a lot in common. Catherine also came from a very unstable home. Her mother died only months after she was born, and throughout her childhood, she was bounced around between family members who didn't really want her. She was first moved to South Africa to live with her abusive father, but then was sent back to Perth to live with her maternal grandparents. 
When her strict, isolating grandmother had an epileptic fit, Catherine was shipped off to her aunt and uncle's house, to an inner southeastern suburb of Perth. Because of her rocky upbringing, Catherine had a hard time making friends. That was until she met David at around 12 years old. Because of their unstable lives, David and Catherine became the best of friends. David Burney was a big reader of everything from politics to science to the Egyptian pyramids, and he enthralled Catherine. But he was also a terrible influence on her. In the mid-1960s, the two were teenagers, and by that time, it wasn't just David committing these crimes and getting in trouble with the police. Starting at the age of 14, their relationship had become sexual, and the pair began committing a series of burglaries, break-ins, and car thefts together. They would always get caught, however, since they were so young, they would never get into much trouble with the courts. The times David did go to jail, he wasn't in there long, and in Catherine's case, since she was just a young girl, they would take pity on her and just give her probation. But once David was out of jail, the two would immediately start over. And by the age of 15, David's crimes became sexual in nature as well. He worked at Ascot Racecourse in central Perth. However, while he was working there, the 15-year-old attempted to rape a 70-year-old woman, but had been scared off by her dog. After that, word of the incident got back to David's employer and he was fired, and rightfully so. But this wasn't the only time something like that had occurred. David's younger brother also reported that he had been raped a few days after David's girlfriend at the time had broken up with him and he wasn't having sex for a few days. At least that's what his brother said about it. In 1969, at the age of 18, David and Catherine faced Perth Police Court and were charged with breaking and entering and stealing a safe from a local drive-in theater. And now that they were over 18, the courts weren't so forgiving, which was the first time Catherine was sent to jail for six months. During that time, with the help of a counselor in jail, Catherine apparently broke her dependence on David. And after her release, she got a job as a nanny and housemaid and even married one of her employer's sons at the age of 21. She and Donald McLaughlin had apparently had a fairly happy marriage. However, all of that changed when Catherine witnessed the death of her first child after he was hit by a car in their driveway, which was extremely traumatizing and possibly played a part in who she became later on. Catherine and her husband at the time went on to have six children after that. David also seemingly moved on. He had married a woman named Carrie, whom he had met only a month prior, but the two also had a daughter. By the early 80s, David and Catherine had been living separate married lives for six years, but things changed when David suffered a head injury while working on a dredging barge. Some large piece of equipment fell on top of his head, leaving a really nasty gash. And according to David's wife, after the accident, he very slowly started to change. He became very critical of her and would say nasty things. He also began having numerous affairs with many different women. After 10 years, their marriage finally ended when David brought his newest girlfriend to live in his home with his wife, which is already insane, but to make things even worse, she was 16 years old. And that's disgusting, in my opinion. He was in his 30s, and she was 16. Nasty. He moved his daughter into his bed with his wife, and he moved into his daughter's room with his new 16-year-old girlfriend. Carrie and her daughter thankfully moved out, and that's when the marriage ended. And it was also around that time that David and Catherine had reunited. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! 
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Catherine had also been having a bad time in her marriage. Her husband had also been in a work-related accident and hurt his back. So he couldn't work for some time because of it, which put a lot of financial strain on the family. And they apparently ended up losing their family home because of it. One day, Catherine decided she had had enough. She moved out of her home, ended her marriage, and moved in with David Burney, and never looked back. But she also abandoned her children, and according to her husband, she had just told him that she was going on a walk, and then she never came back. That is cold. She had just up and disappeared, and then didn't get into contact with him, her children, or her family for years after that. So I can't imagine how jarring that must have been. And difficult for that man who had six children and some kind of injury from a job. Like, that's really difficult. But Catherine didn't care. Catherine and David began living together in a house at 3 Morehouse Street in the Perth suburb of Willoughby, which would soon become their house of horrors. Carrie would take her daughter to visit David, but when she saw how David and Catherine had been living, she was appalled. The house was disgusting. And although the two never legally married, Catherine changed her last name to Bernie because, I guess in her eyes, they were married. David Bernie got a job selling car parts, and his job was only a four-minute drive from the house. And there, he was known as reliable, intelligent, and happy-go-lucky. And in their neighborhood, the couple was considered to be quiet by their neighbors. But Catherine and David were a lethal combination. At home, the Bernies smoked cannabis, took heroin, and prescription drugs, and David Bernie wanted to have sex up to six times a day and would inject anesthetic into his penis to extend his performance. It's unknown who first had the idea to begin kidnapping, assaulting, and killing women. However, before any of that began, David and Catherine read a book together called The Perfect Murder, and they used that book as a blueprint for what they would do. They spent months researching how to commit murder and how to get away with it. So there was nothing random about what they did. They were extremely calculated and intentional. The couple's killing spree took place in the spring of 1986. So if we flash forward to November 8th, 1986, 17-year-old Kate Moyer was at a concert in downtown Perth with her friends. After the concert, one of her friends had offered to give Kate a ride back to her parents' home, which was across the city. However, about halfway home, Kate told her friend it was too far of a drive and she would rather walk the rest of the way herself. It wasn't the best move that she could have made, especially because she had been drinking, but it was the decision that she made. After a little while of walking along Sterling Highway, a young couple driving a brand new car pulled up next to Kate and offered her a ride. And Kate, thinking this couple looked pretty harmless-looking, accepted the ride and hopped in the back seat. David and Catherine Burney actually did drive Kate all the way to her parents' house. However, when she tried to get out of their car, there was no door handle on the back door. She told them she couldn't open the door, so they told her to use the window handle. However, when she looked for that, there wasn't a window handle there either. In that moment, David reached into the back seat, grabbed Kate's head, and slammed it between the two front seats. 
Catherine then pulled out a butcher knife and put it to Kate's throat. They tied Kate's hands together and wrapped her in a huge blanket before driving off. From the back seat, Kate asked the couple a terrifying question and got an even worse response. She asked them, quote, are you going to rape me or kill me? And they told her they'd only rape her if she was good, which is possibly the most disgusting and disturbing answer they could have given her. Kate couldn't believe the situation she was in. She cursed herself for being so stupid, and all she could think about was that she was going to die. Not long after, the car pulled up outside the Bernie's home. After Kate was dragged inside, she was forced to take off her clothes and watched as David put them in a plastic bag that he labeled with her full name, age, and address. She knew at that point that these people had definitely done this before, which must have been the most terrifying realization. I mean, probably comparable to the one that these people are very dangerous and you're not going to get out of their car safely, but no, probably even worse when you realize that they have done this before because clearly they've done it and got away with it enough times that you are now there. The couple then put on the movie Rambo and forced Kate to sit on the couch with them and watch it as they held a knife to her throat. They asked Kate about her life, her family, if she had a boyfriend, and she knew that they were asking her these questions to suss out who would be looking for her after her death, which is good because then she can give them the answers that would make it the most difficult for them to kill her and get away with it. The next few hours were psychological torture. They forced Kate to dance for them to the Dire Straits song, Romeo and Juliet, and by 12.30 a.m., Kate had been chained to the bed and David had raped Kate for the first time as Catherine watched, and that would continue throughout her time there. These people were truly the most horrifying combination because they would kidnap women and David would assault them and Catherine would either watch, cheer him on, or sometimes join in a little bit, which is probably the most horrifying thing I could imagine. And after that, David eventually gave Kate sleeping pills and told her to go to sleep as he handcuffed his ankles to hers. Kate hid the pills under her tongue and pretended to swallow them. And once David was asleep, she took the pills out of her mouth and hid them under the mattress. All she could do was lay there and think about the nightmare that she was now in. She was paralyzed by fear and was convinced that if she fell asleep, she might never wake up. The best thing she could do at that point was scheme. She had to figure out what she could do to free herself. During the past evening, Catherine had been making fun of other girls, which only confirmed for Kate that there had been, in fact, been others before her. And that led her to believe that she would most likely be murdered the next day if she didn't figure out how to save herself. She knew that her chances of getting out of there were very slim. She said in a 2017 interview, quote, I had a 200% chance of dying and a 5% chance of getting away. So at the same time, she decided even if these monsters did kill her, she would do everything in her power to make sure that she would leave a trace of herself behind. She wanted them to get caught. And once they were, the police would know that she was there, which hopefully would bring peace to her family and friends. She wanted them to know that she hadn't just run away and that she did everything she could. And at the same time, she hoped that it would bring down David and Catherine Burney. She wanted to get revenge from beyond the grave, if that's what she had to do. And at the very least, it was something that Kate felt that she was in control of. She could hide things around the apartment and plant evidence. She knew that her chances of living were very slim, but at the same time, she couldn't really acknowledge that, because if she did, 
she would lose all hope and go crazy. So focusing on what she could control was the best thing she could have done for herself. The next morning, David removed the handcuffs from their ankles and forced her to call her parents and tell them that she had been really drunk. David Burney told her that if she said anything to alert them, she would be murdered like the others. And Kate decided that she would play nice and do everything her captors said in order to get on their good side. So that's what she did. That morning was a Monday, so David Burney, who was well-liked at his job, left the house for work. Catherine then led Kate into the living room and went on with the same activities as the night before. She forced Kate to watch another movie with her under knife point, but this time Kate was the one talking. She did everything she could to befriend Catherine enough in hopes that she would let her guard down for Kate to do something. Every time Catherine looked away from Kate, she also took the opportunity to follow through with her plan of leaving evidence everywhere. She hid her lipstick underneath the beanbag and put a pack of cigarettes in a panel in the ceiling by standing on the back of the couch. And because Kate had done everything Catherine had said and talked to her enough to kind of befriend her, she did let her guard down and ended up locking Kate back in the bedroom without chaining her up. And at the same time that that happened, Kate heard that someone had knocked on the door and Catherine had gone to answer it. So she knew this was probably her only opportunity to escape. Inside the room was a small window, which was also locked, but she was able to break the lock and force the window open. This was an extremely terrifying moment, as we can only imagine, but she had to work up the courage to do that because she knew breaking a lock and forcing a window open would not be a quiet thing and it would definitely alert her captor. So she had to be quick. Once she had gotten the window open, Kate very quickly climbed through it and jumped down. She unfortunately landed on her head, which was only more terrifying because if she didn't get up quickly, she wouldn't be able to make her escape. With what was a throbbing head and probably a concussion, Kate forced herself to her feet and started running. She ran to the house next door and knocked on the door, but nobody answered, so she just kept going. She was hysterically crying and laughing all at the same time as she ran from door to door. She knocked on three doors before she ran into a backyard and jumped a fence. Once over the fence, she was apparently attacked by a black dog and managed to fight the dog off, but the entire time she couldn't help but think about her captors discovering she had escaped and running down the street themselves to look for her. That sounds like something straight out of a horror movie. Literally running from your captors through a backyard and getting attacked somewhat by a dog and then having to fight off the dog all while you're wondering if the if your captors are coming after you. It's a nightmare. But thankfully, she did make it out of this backyard and away from the dog and she saw a man standing on the corner of a store smoking a cigarette. So she darted for this man, hoping she would finally be able to get some help. She immediately told him that she had been raped and she needed him to take her inside to call the police. Kate was terrified that Catherine would find her there, so she also told the man, if a woman comes in here and tells you I'm her daughter and we've just had a fight, don't believe her. At the local police station, Officer Laura Hancock was eager to begin her first week on the force. However, she was told by her sergeant that her first duty on the job would be to go take a statement of a young girl who had been picked up off the street. Laura was in a panic because this was the first statement she would ever take as a police officer. 
And when she got there, Kate was immediately insistent that the people who had kidnapped her were serial killers, and the police needed to be out there looking for them and not wasting their time questioning her. She told Laura she believed there had been others before her that had been killed, and had she not escaped, she also would have been killed. Quite the jarring first day of work. I mean, Jesus. You're dealing with a girl who escaped two serial killers, and she says they'll go out and do it again if you don't stop them? I mean, talk about high pressure. Goddamn. She described David as having an abnormally long, hooked nose, and Catherine as a short woman with a permanent frown and high cheekbones. Quite the description. After calming down, Kate told Laura everything that had happened to her. During her statement, Laura realized there were a few things that seemed odd about her story, like how she had been kidnapped, why she was left alone, why hadn't they killed her, which is when Laura realized her sergeant had given her this task because he believed Kate had been lying and he didn't want to deal with it. So when she returned to her sergeant with Kate's statement, he told her that it was a bizarre story and Laura needed to charge Kate for giving a police officer a false report. Could you actually imagine escaping two serial killers, running away from them, getting attacked by a dog potentially, calling the police only to then be charged yourself because you quote unquote lied to them? That would be appalling. But it's not like we haven't heard that happen before, that police didn't believe someone who ran to them and said, hey, I escaped someone who was trying to kill me. So it's unfortunately not the craziest thing I've ever heard. And Laura felt incredibly uneasy about the whole situation. She couldn't help but think about the fact that Kate was the most worried about her captor's risk to others and their list of victims. It wasn't really about what had happened to her. Kate was only interested in getting Laura to go arrest these people. So instead of following the orders given to her, she thankfully decided that she would follow her gut. And we love to hear it. 30 days before Kate's escape in downtown Perth, Detective Paul Ferguson received a missing persons report for a Perth University student named Mary Nielsen. And only a few days later, another missing persons report came in. But this time, it was a much younger girl named Sue Candy. And although neither of these girls had been found, he had been instructed to stop looking for them since both had either written letters or called their parents, telling them that they had run away. But that's when a third missing girl was added to this list. Her name was Nolene Patterson. And not even a week later, a fourth woman went missing. And that was 21-year-old Denise Brown. Four missing girls in the span of like two weeks. Detective Ferguson was overwhelmed by this string of missing girls, and like I said, his superiors told him to stop looking for them because they had either called their parents or a loved one or written a letter saying that they were running away, which is something that the police always say, like, oh, maybe they ran away. So if they get confirmation in some sort of way that they had, then of course they're going to stop looking for them. But Detective Ferguson, thankfully, had a very bad feeling about it and now saw that there was some sort of connection between all four of these missing girls who had, like I said, gone missing in a span of like two weeks. So when Detective Ferguson contacted Denise's mother, he was again shocked to find out that she had also called a relative shortly after her disappearance to let them know that she was staying at a friend's place. But that was completely out of character for Denise, because if she was going to be staying somewhere, she absolutely would have called her mother, not this random relative. And because this was so out of character, her mother and Detective Ferguson 
believed that Denise had been a victim of foul play. And at this point, Detective Ferguson began to see the pattern between these missing girls and sent Superintendent Vince Kadich to interview an eyewitness. This witness had seen Denise try to catch a bus in Fremantle. Fremantle was a port town located outside of Perth, which was usually a calm, safe area. This area had a small police force, but since it was the last place Denise Brown had been seen, the detective called them and told them that he would be coming there later that day to pay them a visit. However, before he was even able to make his visit there, he was called back by the police department and was informed that a young woman was in their station and may be connected to the Denise Brown disappearance. So, of course, Detective Ferguson immediately makes his way to the Palmyra station. Officer Laura Hancock was extremely pleased to find out that another investigator was on their way to meet them, because at that point, she thought she was the only one who believed Kate's story. But when Ferguson arrived and started questioning Kate about Denise Brown, she knew he was on their side. Kate started by telling him the names of her captors, David and Catherine Burney, who were living in the Palmyra suburbs. She also told them she believed 100% that they were behind Denise Brown's murder. During her captivity, Kate had been sitting with Catherine in the living room as she witnessed Catherine see Denise's missing persons photo in the paper. And Catherine, when she saw it, began laughing. So Kate asked her what was so funny. Catherine responded, You'd think a big girl like that could look after herself. The photo in the paper had just been of Denise Brown's head meaning you couldn't tell that Denise was a quote-unquote big girl at all. So that's when Kate knew that Denise must have been one of the Bernie's victims before her, especially because Catherine is a lunatic laughing at a missing persons photo. Like, who does that? Kate, of course, didn't say anything to Catherine, but she made a mental note of the interaction. And it's a good thing she did, because now that she had escaped, she had all of this information to give to police. Kate gave Ferguson her story, which included the time the Bernies had forced her to call her parents to give a fake story about where she was. And that's what all the other missing girls had done before her. And not only that, but every part of her story lined up with the other missing girls as well. So with this information, it now became very clear to everyone that Kate was absolutely telling the truth. A fleet of officers left the station to go find the Bernies. Ferguson asked Kate if she would accompany them to point out her captor's house for them. She very bravely agreed, and once they made it to their home, Kate immediately pointed it out, burst into tears, and ducked down. That way, neither Catherine nor David could see her if they were there. When police pulled up and knocked on the door, Catherine had seemingly vacated the home, so they decided they would go door-to-door to the neighbors to find out if any of them had witnessed anything. And Ferguson did successfully find a witness. That was neighbor of the Bernies, Sandy Holloway. She had lived just across the street and had seen Kate break out of the window, jump down, and run away. So with that information coming from a witness and not just Kate, they had enough to legally break down the Bernies' doors. And inside the house, they discovered everything Kate had told them about her lipstick underneath the beanbag, a pack of cigarettes in the attic, and the movie Rocky was still in the VCR, which was the last one Catherine had made her watch. She also told investigators she had been given a sleeping pill, which she had spat out, and they found that on the bedroom floor as well. 
And they also found the chains on the bed that Kate had told them about. She had even given them the detail that the locks on these chains had numbers on them, and they saw that the chains on the bed also had numbers on them. So every single thing lined up exactly as Kate said it would, which is very good on Kate. The fact that she was able to do all of those little things and then remember so much, she just handed the police these monsters. And that's a huge win. While police were searching the home, Catherine Burney returned to the scene with bags full of cleaning supplies. She was going to just clean up the house and pretend like none of that had ever happened. And once she noticed these officers at her home, she began running. But she didn't get very far before an officer caught up with her and grabbed her. She was very aggressive with the officers because, of course, she knew why they were there. The police told Catherine they were there because a young girl had reported to them that she had been abducted and kept in the home. However, Catherine denied any knowledge of what they were talking about. Police were then sent out to David Burney's place of employment, and he was arrested as well. I bet they weren't expecting that on that Monday morning. After they were arrested, David and Catherine were, of course, split up. David was sent to Perth with Ferguson, while Catherine stayed with Hancock and the other officers in the Palmyra station. During David's interview, Ferguson noticed how weak and feeble David had been acting. David asked to speak to Catherine, which wasn't going to happen, but Ferguson asked David how many were there, meaning how many girls had they killed, and he told them four. He also named the four girls, Mary Nielsen, Sue Candy, Nolene Patterson, and Denise Brown, all four of the missing girls that Ferguson had been looking for. Back in Palmyra, Catherine was not giving the investigators anything. She refused to speak without her attorney present, but that didn't last very long once the investigator let her know that David had told them everything in Perth. And that's when Catherine started speaking, but her story included an attempt to clear her name and drag David through the mud. She basically claimed that she was doing all of this because David wanted to, and she did anything she could to be with him, which isn't really a redeeming quality, Catherine. You literally killed four girls and have no soul, it seems. But, you know, she's backed into a corner and she wants to get as little of a sentence as possible. So she gave them her story of things, but police knew that she had been lying. They also believed Catherine was kind of the mastermind behind these crimes. They knew from Kate's story that she was the one who chose the victims, and she was ordering David around during the assaults. The two would go hunting for young women who were in a vulnerable situation. They were either out hitchhiking, one of them had a broken down car on the side of the road, another one had gone to the Bernie's home to buy a spare tire. Like, they did anything they could to get women in their grasps. And unfortunately, it wasn't very difficult for them. But once these girls were in their car, David would be behind the wheel with Catherine in the passenger seat. And the two had a secret code with each other for when they found their next victim. Catherine was actually the one who decided and would say to David, I've got the munchies. And then David would respond, yeah, I've got the munchies too. And if David said yes, Catherine would pull out a knife and jump into the back seat and hold the young woman at knife point as she tied their hands together and threatened them that they would be killed if they didn't cooperate, which is what they had done with Kate. 
After assaulting their victims, they would then force the girls to write letters to their family saying they would be away with friends. And the next day, they would make a phone call to friends or family. And the letters they wrote would be sent out about a week apart as to not stir up any suspicion. Obviously, they did stir up suspicion, but the Bernies thought they wouldn't. And after a few days of hell, the couple would then force the victim to take a sleeping pill and strangle them to death with a nylon cord and bury their body in Glen Eagle bushland. According to police, Catherine Burney was the puppeteer, and David Burney was the puppet. But honestly, I don't really know. It seems like both of them were equally terrible. So it's possible that Catherine was the puppeteer, but David was also very clearly enthusiastically taking part in all of it, which isn't much better. And after the murders hit the news, a 19-year-old female student came forward and claimed that she had been walking home from her university when a couple tried to pick her up. She felt uneasy about getting in the car, and she saw what she assumed was either a young boy or girl laying in the back seat. And because of that, the student declined a ride, and the car soon drove away. But her description of the driver and the woman in the passenger seat matched David and Catherine Burney. So she also unknowingly got away from a pair of serial killers, which must have been a big shock when she saw that on the news because that's horrifying, but also confirmed her feelings of uneasiness. So very good on her for not getting in the car. With these monsters in custody, the police were now finally able to find the bodies of these missing girls. They were led out to Glen Eagle by the couple and were directed to a small wooded area between a truck stop and a family picnic spot. David first pointed out where the bodies of Mary Nielsen and Denise Brown had been buried. When the police asked about Nolene Patterson, Catherine was the one who pointed out her grave, and then she walked up to it and spat on it. Nolene had tried a similar tactic to Kate. She also tried to play nice and befriend her captors, but it had gone wrong when David had taken too much of a liking to her. Catherine had become extremely jealous during their interactions and had run into the room with a knife and told David that it was either her or the girl, and if he chose the girl, she would kill herself on the spot. And that obviously did not end well for Nolene. They forced her to take sleeping pills and ended up killing her, which is just devastating. And what they were going to do anyway, but the fact that she also tried this tactic and kind of got somewhere with it is really sad and unfair. David and Catherine Burney were charged with four counts of deprivation of liberty, aggravated sexual assault, and four counts of murder. In February of 1987, they were sentenced to four life terms for their murder of Sue Candy, Mary Nielsen, Nolene Patterson, and Denise Brown, plus 10 years for deprivation of liberty and 20 years for what they had done to Kate. After their sentencing, Ferguson and the Perth police opened a bunch of cold cases in order to compare them to what they now knew about David and Catherine's killing spree. And Ferguson believes that at least David was involved in the death of several other young women, and Catherine, at the very least, knew about them if she wasn't also involved, but I wouldn't be surprised if she was. There were three other cases, the differences of Cheryl Renwick, Barbara Weston, and 12-year-old Lisa Mott. And those three disappearances are believed to be committed by either David, Catherine, or both of them. But unfortunately, the answer to those cases died in 2003 when David Burney was found dead in his protective custody cell after he had taken his life. 
In 2016, Catherine became West Australia's longest-serving female inmate after 30 years at a maximum security prison for women. The law in Western Australia states that after 20 years in jail, any and all criminals get access to a chance at parole every three years. So as the sole survivor of Catherine's crimes, Kate had been forced to testify repeatedly at Catherine's parole hearings. And this was, of course, extremely traumatic every single time, which was something Kate said she wouldn't wish on anyone. And that's when she decided she would take a stand against the system. Through her work, she successfully reformed Australia's parole system, and in 2018, a bill was introduced that was credited to Kate, which made it so criminals charged with three or more murders in one trial would be ineligible for parole. Kate also became an advocate for victims of violent crimes and wrote a book called Dead Girl Walking about her story. It's clear that if Kate hadn't managed to save her own life, the Bernies would have gone on to kill many more women in the days and weeks to come, which is both terrifying and amazing to think about how many lives she actually saved that day. Her bravery and determination saved not just herself, but so many other women, and that is incredible. It's unbelievable to me that before this, Australia just allowed any criminal to get a chance at parole every single three years. Like, that is shocking information. I know that the laws and justice systems and whatnot are very different in every single country. So, like, it's not going to be the same as the U.S. But it's shocking because some of these criminals are clearly really bad and are never going to not be bad. So giving someone like that an opportunity to be out of prison just because they are a model prisoner or play nice in prison does not mean that they are safe to put on the streets. This woman was a monster and there was nothing that was going to change that. And in prison, people have said that she is extremely manipulative and and she is one of those prisoners who at times would get what she wants because she knew how to manipulate those around her. So that kind of person is extremely dangerous to give a chance at parole every single three years. So I'm extremely glad to hear that Kate put all of that effort and was successful in getting the law changed for not only herself, but others like her. And thanks to her, Catherine Burney will stay in prison where she belongs for the rest of her life. I don't have much information on where Kate is today other than her, you know, getting that law changed, which is huge and amazing. But other than that, I don't really have anything else about her. And that's fine. You know, like, let's leave her be. And I wish her nothing but the best. Just a long, happy, peaceful life. Because she deserves that. But anyway, that is the story of the Morehouse murders and the survival of Kate Moyer. Gosh, whew. Why don't we all take a deep breath? Because that one was rough. But anyway, that is about all I have to say about that. So why don't we move on to a bit of a palate cleanser and I'll tell you something good that's happening in my life um, because who doesn't love a good thing? So my good thing is I actually mentioned this good thing on our last bonus episode that just came out about a week ago. But my good thing is that I will be doing some stage combat for my sister's high school play because she is a teacher at a high school and I was asked to choreograph some fights and teach them to her high schoolers and I'm 
extremely excited about it. I haven't done stage combat in a little while, but it was something that I've done all throughout college and was extremely passionate about and loved a lot. So I'm really excited that I'm getting the opportunity to do that again. So yeah, I've just been choreographing some interesting, cool fights in my living room in my free time, which is uh, kind of silly, but that's, <laughs> that's what I have to do. So yeah, it's busy over here, but it's a good busy. And we love that. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nontoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out that bonus episode that I just mentioned, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you have a spooky story or something crazy that's happened to you, and you would like to send it in and possibly hear it on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to do a spooky listener story soon, so send those in. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. 